Welcome to the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Not surprisingly, COVID-19 continues to dominate the news landscape across the world, and that's very much reflected in what's being reported across the security business sector at the present time. One of our most uh, popular stories in the past few days has involved FM Solutions provider Mighty. The company's uh, dedicated security operation has become the first business in the sector, in fact, to successfully pilot virtual accredited training modules. The business is working in partnership with the Security Industry Authority and Highfield Qualifications, latter being the licence awarding body, uh, to provide online access to the training course which is required for anyone who aspires to become a licensed security officer. Uh, to date, six mighty employees have taken part in the pilot and they successfully completed their training and after passing their assessments, they've been awarded their SIA licence card, so great success there. And more than 50 mighty employees, in fact, are expected to complete the courses in the coming weeks. These are designed for individuals wanting to take their first step towards a career in the private security industry. The virtual security guarding course actually consists of 20 hours of virtual training in the form of live tutorials. These are in fact delivered via video conferencing platforms over a minimum of three days. And during this time, participants cover a number of specialist and management modules, among them health and safety, patrolling, searching, access and egress control and avoiding or otherwise diffusing conflict. Now, to ensure the regulated standards are met, both the SIA and HIFOR qualification supervisors actually make unannounced visits by joining the live tutorials. At the end of the course, the participants are then required to take three online assessments on invigilated software to test their knowledge and competency. But once the uh, completed assessments are submitted, the online test results can be delivered in just 20 minutes. This is significantly faster than the two to three weeks that it normally takes for on-site examinations to be graded. Uh, Jason Towers, who's Managing Director of Business Services at Mighty, has talked to the unprecedented demand for security offices in key sectors just now, such as retail and healthcare, at a time when people are physically unable to attend their training. He's rightly proud of the fact that uh, Mighty is paving the way with this virtual training, offering people the chance to kickstart their career in security and also support efforts designed to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, Jason's going to be one of the guests on our upcoming webinar focused on security guarding. This takes place on the 28th of May. You can access our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters for further details. Now, this news story, it's interesting to note, has already generated 1,600 plus views in less than a week via the Security Matters LinkedIn platform. So if you want uh, more detail, do visit our website and see what the regulator has to say. Europol, the European Law Enforcement Agency, has also been firmly focused on COVID-19 in recent days. The organisation has been looking in some detail at the pandemic's impact on serious and organised crime. And we've picked up on that fact by dint of the report that Europol has issued on that very subject. Anticipating the long-term impact of such crime is pretty difficult, of course. What Europol is doing is reflecting on previous moments of crisis, such as the economic situation we all experienced back in 07 and 08, and how they unfolded in terms of the security threats posed, in order to anticipate what might happen going forward in this present situation. In essence, Europol is assessing the impact of the pandemic across three key phases, namely the current situation, the mid-term outlook and the long-term impact. Phase one, the current situation, Europol's monitoring efforts have so far focused on immediate occurrences in the aftermath of COVID-19 in its outbreak and the introduction of quarantine measures that we're all experiencing just now. A coronavirus-related criminality, uh, such as cybercrime, for example, fraud and counterfeiting, has pretty much followed the spread of the pandemic throughout Europe. That's uh, Europol's view of the landscape at the present time. Now, the midterm outlook, that's phase two, 
is talking about an easing of the lockdown measures and that will see criminal activity return to previous levels and feature the same type of activities that were present before the pandemic itself broke out. However, the pandemic is likely to have created new opportunities for criminal activities that will be exploited beyond the end of the current crisis. It's expected, in fact, that the economic impact of the pandemic and the activities of those seeking to exploit it will only start to become apparent in a mid-term phase and most likely not fully manifest themselves until the longer term. Some of the relevant crime areas that Europol is talking about here are money laundering, shell companies, and also the property and construction sectors. In terms of the latter, it's fully anticipated that these will become even more attractive for money laundering, both in terms of investment and as a justification for the movement of funds. Another area that uh, Europol is talking about here is the key topic of migrant smuggling. Phase three is the long-term impact. Now, you'll not be surprised to learn here that communities, and especially so vulnerable groups within them, tend to become more accessible to organised crime during times of crisis. Economic hardship does make communities more receptive to certain offers, such as cheaper counterfeit goods, for example, or recruitment to engage in criminal activity. It's expected, in fact, that mafia-type organised crime groups are likely to take advantage of the crisis and the persistent economic hardship by recruiting or attempting to recruit vulnerable young people and also engaging in loan sharking, extortion and racketeering. Uh, Organised crime doesn't occur in isolation, we all know that, and the state of the wider economy plays a key role here. The crisis often results in changes in consumer demand for types of goods and services, and this will inevitably lead to shifts in criminal markets as we uh, move in time. But the key factors impacting crime, well, several factors are exerting a major impact on serious and organised crime during COVID. These factors shape criminal behaviour and they create vulnerabilities. Based on experience gained during prior crises, it's essential to monitor these factors to anticipate developments and pick up on warning signals. What do those uh, warning signals look like? Well, there's online activities at present. More people are spending more time online throughout the day for work and leisure during the pandemic, which has increased the attack vectors and the attack surface to launch various types of cyber attacks. Uh, fraud schemes and other activities targeting regular users are also there. Uh, there's demand for and the scarcity of certain goods, especially of healthcare products and equipment. This is driving a significant portion of criminals' activities in counterfeit and substandard goods and fraud at the present time. There's also the subject of payment methods. The pandemic is likely to have an impact on payment preferences beyond the duration of uh, the pandemic itself. With a shift of economic activity to online platforms, cashless transactions are increasing in number and frequency. There's also rising unemployment and reductions in legitimate investment. These may present greater opportunities for criminal groups as individuals and organisations in the private and public sectors are rendered more vulnerable to compromise. So what's the key takeaway from all of this? Well, now more than ever, I think, uh, international policing needs to work with an increased connectivity, both in the physical and the virtual worlds. This crisis once again proves that exchanging vital information on crime is essential when it comes to fighting that crime within the law enforcement community. The silo mentality and the way of operation of the silo is fast becoming a thing of the past. For this Security Matters podcast, I'm absolutely delighted that we've had the chance to chat with Rick Manfield. Rick is the CEO at the Security Institute. He's a former servant of the Royal Military Police for over two decades. He then moved into close protection work for just shy of 10 years before he took on his present role at the Institute. Rick was admitted to the Register of Chartered Security Professionals back in September 2016, and he now drives the main aims of the Institute, one of which is to encourage professional development and continuous learning, two subjects very close to my own heart. At present, Rick is very focused on the subjects of innovation, 
the overriding need for great service delivery and the requirement for agile security teams and operations. Rick, first of all, thanks very much indeed for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, at present, the Institute's members of staff are necessarily working from home. What impact is this having on the day-to-day running of the organisation, can you tell us? Yeah, it's interesting, Brian. We The focus is, uh, for me, very much around wellness. The this first month has been um, wellness is at right at the front of my mind. I read a McKinsey um, report recently that stated, interestingly, that introverts are thriving with this home working, uh, whereas some extroverts are really struggling to cope with it. Uh, and I'm seeing this in fits and starts through the institute's team. You know, we're a we're quite a sociable team. It's only a small team, um, but the HQ staff are all friends and quite used to reading each other's moods. You know, when one walks into the office, um, having had a maybe uh, something on their mind, you can tell, and so give them space uh, to settle in, make a cup of tea, sit down, then start open up the chit chat and so on. Um, but when you're all working from home, it's it's different. It's difficult to read the non-verbal signals. So what we what we did was well, thankfully not we, um, Helen, our office manager. Um, she's quite forward thinking. She developed, um, I suppose you could call a wellness survey. And all members of staff complete this at the end of the week uh, on Friday as a summary of the week. You know, it covers things like uh, communications. Did they feel like there was enough communication with line managers and teammates? Productivity were they? Did they feel they achieved all the things they wanted to achieve in the week? You know, and even general happiness. They're all considered And it's made us realise, you know, from the trends, and I see everybody's reports, the trends are everybody has uh, good days and bad days. And there's no specific reason sometimes for having a down day, but that's okay. You know, what what we want is the staff will will say that they've just not feeling themselves today and everybody just gives them a bit of a a broad reach. And we've got to be more communicative when we can't read nonverbal communications. And I honestly think this is... This is one of the indicators of our high-functioning team. Yeah, that's the that's the main thing, really. That's that's changed day to day. It's interesting you can say that, Rick. I mean, the Security Institute is indeed well known and, and revered, I would say, for its continual industry engagement and its effective social calendar right across the year every year. But given you're not able to run workshops and conferences at the present time, how are you meeting the ongoing needs of your members? I'd say we're probably as busy as we've ever been. The output remains high. We have a lot of digital content. Because um, that's the the engagement activity of choice as well. It's the only ac- uh, activity that we have open to us. And the Institute is an enormous pool of experts. And we're lucky to have a lot of engaged experts that we can call upon that are willing to give their time freely. And add to that yeah, about 38 corporate partner businesses um, from across tech and retail and cyber and engineering. There's... Um, There's a very diverse portfolio of webinar content that we can put out. Our professional development platform has seen an exponential increase in usage in April, almost doubling the amount of logins and sustained activity within the tens of thousands of different um, uh, options you can do around professional development and mentoring. You know, the mentoring platform as well is picked up. There's more people feel they've got time to spare to give their experience to others. And there's a lot more people seeking advice, some, you know, regarding furloughing and job seeking, which is terribly sad, but many more that are trying to come out of this crisis better than they were 
when we went into it. I think we'll always be very supportive of industry efforts, you know, uh, helping, you know, talking to you on this and other other people's um, webinars. The, you know, the industry, uh, the institute is, is always willing to, to put volunteers forward to other initiatives. We have uh, Cyber Convergence Special Interest Group is now is is heavily active in in its part in building the Cyber Security Council, which was uh, the result of a consultation through the department's um, Digital Culture, Media, Sport and the National Cyber Security Centre. So we are one of 16 organisations that are in that alliance, the Cyber Alliance, and we're leading one of the 10 work streams, that, that work stream being developing the profession. It's an enormous project, but our members are passionate about having an influence on these sorts of subjects. Um, of course, we're intricately involved in several projects at the SIA, most notably the license link qualifications, uh, which were due to be released as the new training criteria in September. But um, as they declared last week, that will now be pushed back probably to next spring. And we've just purchased a, a community engagement platform uh, called Higher Logic. So uh, for our 13 special interest groups that we have, um, each one of those groups, as well as the membership management advisory group and the validation board will all have a collaborative work area where they'll be able to have their uh, their own sort of blogging area. They'll be able to upload documents uh, that are relevant to that subject. People in that group that will all be managed by the special interest group chairs will be able to download the content other members put in uh, and engage on specific topics, you know, like cultural places of worship, security and cyber convergence and travel risk management and security education and training. Those those SIGs will all have their own areas. And that's a significant investment, you know, in the, the membership offering. One of the things you mentioned there, Rick, was cyber threats and economic crime. They're two key areas at the moment, I think, of focus for everyone, really, but particularly the Institute, I think. How do you feel the rising threat here will impact law enforcement as time passes? Well, you know, it's no secret the law enforcement has been focused into uh, the areas of fraud, uh, economic crime, serious and organised uh, crime, then gangs. And having read a, a report that Europol released just last week around the long-term impact of this coronavirus uh, pandemic, there, you know, there is a there is a thought that communities, especially um, ones uh, communities, low social mobility communities, impoverished areas, um, and as people have less income, there may be more tolerance towards supporting or or not. Um, being unsupportive of organised crime gangs, people purchasing fake goods. It's uh, the cyber threat and vulnerabilities of people working from home. It's it's going to create more vulnerabilities. And I think there's an opportunity there for, for the security industry, whether it be in cyber, uh, economic crime, anti-money laundering, or frontline security, there's a, there's a role for us to, to fill the gaps for businesses to operate effectively that the you know the police need help with and I'm not talking about replacing the police but just augmenting that's that's the way I see things panning out one of the subjects I know you've very strong views on yourself is the agility of security teams and security operations in general Rick what lessons do you think we're learning in this regard and how do you feel security operations will develop after the pandemic has passed well I think flexibility is the key word here we have an opportunity during this crisis to demonstrate our worth as an industry um, when business and society needs us the most. We always have that value add 
uh, I believe. But there are many ways to show that right now. You know, video analytics are being used to monitor shoppers' activity and uh, manage the numbers in, in, in closed spaces with social distancing. Um, we've got venue security companies that are re-rolling staff to retail supply chain. And, and I've even heard of um, big security event companies releasing uh, their stores of, of shower-proof um, capes that they give to their security staff at, at, at football matches and re-rolling that stuff, giving it to the NHS as protective equipment, you know, because they're plastic sheeting coveralls, basically. I see uh, cybersecurity is going to be paramount with, you know, with an increased uh, vulnerability from uh, deperimeterized devices and home working. Security is going to be instrumental in the end. When we start to return back to work, it's likely to be very complicated. Staff in businesses are going to be really nervous about returning to the buildings and the workspaces. So security staff displaying confidence um, and reassurance and the advice that comes out as they return to the buildings is going to be really important. And that's going to build, I think, a respect for the industry. Hopefully, we'll give a good account of ourselves now that will last um, beyond this this uh, crisis. And following on from that point, Rick, you make there, which is very, very valid indeed, uh, once we do return to what might be termed business as usual here in the UK and beyond, what are your ambitions and goals for the Institute in, say, the next two to three years? Oh, well, the Institute is um, sort of rigid to its its strategic um, its strategic aims. You know, growth is, is very important to us. We need to hit a critical mass. More, more people that value peer validation and not just sitting back on past accolades, continuous professional development is, is vital. So the mission statement to inspire, inform and influence professional excellence for the benefit of our members, the security community and wider society is, is the bottom line. But the aims remain. We'll be committed to providing you know, an exceptional membership experience, investing in membership benefits. That's the nature of a not-for-profit organisation. We will continue to promote lifelong learning, professional development and, and qualifications. We're about to release our approved training provider scheme um, where we're going to take the guesswork out of which security training providers are worth the money I'm going to spend and which ones are not. So we're going to invite those trained providers uh, of courses that are not credit bearing to to register with us so that we can assess the course, the content, the instructors, the environment and the and then give the certificate that people will be able to have um, some pride in, you know, the stuff in between training. We'll continue to support networking, the mentoring, the professional development and competence through peer review and validation of members, which is, you know, singly our most uh, valuable aspect of the Institute's membership as voted for by the members. We have a new Big Ask survey in development. First draft is up. Uh, we'll be pushing that out before the end of the month so that the members can give us their opinions on what they value. Um, and then we will continue to collaborate with government, the academic bodies. We're, we're picking that up uh, more and more and other organisations to influence policy to enhance the reputation and understanding of our discipline, the security, what is it? Because you know, I don't think people fully understand it. But ultimately, the, the a powerful and unifying voice of the industry is what we hope to be able to produce for the good and benefit of everybody that's in our industry.
subjects that's really grabbing the security world's attention just now is that of artificial intelligence, or AI. The Royal United Services Institute Defence and Security Think Tank was recently commissioned by GCHQ to conduct a detailed research study into the use of AI for national security purposes. We've reported on this on the Security Matters website. The resulting 57-page research report finds that AI offers numerous opportunities for the UK security community to improve both the efficiency and effectiveness of existing processes. The report's findings are based on in-depth consultations with stakeholders from across the UK security sphere, as well as law enforcement agencies, private sector companies, members of academia, legal experts and representatives of civil society. As Rishi points out, AI is great in that it can render key insights from disparate data sets and identify connections that would otherwise go unnoticed by human operators. However, in the context of national security and the powers afforded to UK intelligence agencies, the use of AI could give rise to additional privacy and human rights considerations. These would then need to be assessed within the existing legal and regulatory framework. For this reason, it follows that enhanced policy and guidance is going to be required such that the uses of AI are reviewed on an ongoing basis as new analysis methods are applied to data. Future threats could include criminals using AI to develop what are known as deep fakes. This is when a computer is able to learn to generate convincing faked video of a real person to manipulate public opinion, for example. AI might also be used to mutate malware for cyber attacks, making those attacks far more difficult for normal IT security systems to detect. Importantly, the researchers involved firmly believe that AI will only be of limited value when it comes to predictive intelligence in key areas such as counter-terrorism. They state that acts of terrorism, for example, are too infrequent to provide sufficiently large historical data sets to look for patterns. Even within that data set, we've all seen that the background and ideologies of the perpetrators vary so much that it's somewhat difficult to build a model of a terrorist profile. The report points out that there are too many variables to make predictions straightforward, with new events potentially being radically different from previous ones. Further, any kind of profiling could also be seen as being discriminatory and lead to those aforementioned human rights concerns. On the technology side, one of the main worries here is that it might even be possible to use AI in repurposing and controlling drones to carry out targeted attacks. A worrying thought to say the very least. There's little doubt then that AI will be used to target security systems in the UK in times hence and, put simply, we need to be ready with a solid defence. For now, it seems like a classic case of watch this space where the roadmap of AI insecurity is concerned. The latest crime figures emerging from the Office for National Statistics paint a somewhat mixed picture, with episodes of knife crime now showing to be at an all-time high. On the back of that, the Police Federation of England and Wales is continuing its call for a long-term funding deal for the police service from central government. The ONS crime figures for 2019 show knife crime up by 7% from last year, as well as a 12% increase in robberies but it's pleasing to note that there has been a decrease in cases of theft and burglary offences. While the total number of offences involving knives or sharp instruments in England and Wales has grown by that figure of 7%, the rates of increase have varied considerably across police forces. For example, there was a 5% increase in London and a 13% uptick in the West Midlands, but a 9% fall in West Yorkshire. In addition, the number of homicides where a knife or sharp instrument was involved decreased by 8%, yet there was a 13% increase in London. Commenting in the news story that we've published on Security Matters, John Apter, who is the National Chair of the Police Federation, has pointed towards the effects of government austerity that have underpinned Westminster's push for 20,000 officers that was first announced last year. Apter believes that this particular investment will still only bring officer numbers back to their levels pre-2008, it also stands to reason it's going to take time for the effects of this much-needed cash injection to be felt. Apter has said, and I quote, 
It's a tragedy that knife crime continues to spiral as my colleagues are stretched to their limits. With fewer officers on patrol, it comes as no surprise to learn that street crime such as robbery has increased. The fact that some statistics have fallen despite this is testament to the hard work and dedication of police officers right across the country. Other key statistics to be found in the ONS report include a 3% decrease in recorded offences involving firearms, a 1% increase in vehicle offences and a 2% increase in the overall number of homicides. Understandably, the next ONS report is going to look very different from this this one, as the current lockdown will certainly impact the published numbers. What this current crisis has highlighted for many commentators though, and John Apps is certainly among them, is the other story told in these figures. Policing, it would seem, desperately needs long-term and sustained funding that's unaffected by political priorities, such that crime can be fought head-on. Our final interviewee on this second edition of the Security Matters podcast is Lars Larsen, Lars is the Chief Financial Officer and Interim CEO of Milestone Systems, which of course provides open platform video management software. We caught up with Lars to find out how the business is coping during the COVID-19 lockdown, and also to ascertain what's in the company's R&D pipeline. Good morning, Lars. So all businesses are finding the market tough just now due to the lockdown scenarios being imposed by the authorities. Um, what's Milestone doing to drive continued growth going forward? Yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, so um, of course, uh, what's most important for us in general is uh, the safety and the well-being of our employees uh, and the whole partner community uh, that we work with, and of course, also our end users, and 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 that's our key priorities. Uh, we have taken steps, uh, of course, in accordance with the local authorities' uh, safety measures uh, regarding COVID nineteen, and that. That varies a lot depending on uh, the countries, and we are in uh, 25 countries uh, globally, so uh, the the steps and the measures, uh, of course, varies uh, locally. But what we do uh, is that we continue to drive our business, uh, our support lines are all working so that we can offer support to our customers. We are also engaging our partners uh, to sell uh, care products to the customers at a favorable price uh, that we have just launched so that uh, uh, so that uh, both the resellers uh, and the customers and us can benefit uh, from uh, the offerings uh, during these times because this can be sold and handed uh, without uh, visiting uh, the customers. At the same time, there are also opportunities uh, for the resellers uh, during these days. Uh, some sites are empty and some Science and companies use this as an opportunity uh, to implement uh, uh, new uh, cameras, to implement new uh, software, to uh, clean up uh, the site and, and all of that. So, 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 so that can be an opportunity for our uh, resellers as well. And also we are seeing some cities are, are utilizing video surveillance uh, um, as part of the COVID measures uh, in, uh, in in general, and that can also be an opportunity for some of our resellers. So we are uh, we are actually seeing uh, some business out there, both from uh, from our perspective, but also from our partners' uh, perspective. That's very positive news. That's great. Mm-hmm. And last year, of course, you launched Milestone Marketplace to connect buyers with sellers. How's that developed as you wanted it to? And can you tell us about version two, which is scheduled to debut this year? Yeah, so um, uh, so it was uh, launched, uh, uh, and at the time where we launched it in uh, 2019, uh, we had already then uh, 100 over 100 uh, partner solutions, and at that time it was uh, uh, focusing on the partner solutions. 
uh, to the resellers uh, so that the resellers could get inspirations of uh, where to find partner solutions, how to uh, build uh, solutions uh, for the end users. Uh, and that has uh, developed uh, strongly uh, during 2019. The next version, we will focus more on uh, the the, the, the reseller part where the reseller can actually go in and uh, show their offerings, show their vertical offerings uh, to uh, the end users. And we will start to see a more end user focused uh, market, marketplace. And all of that is, of course, to create uh, business and leads to the whole community, both to the resellers, uh, to the distributors, and of course, to, uh, uh, to our solution partners. Uh, so, so that's that's in the thinking right now. And in terms of your R and D effort, Lars, what's the current focus for the business behind the scenes? Yeah, uh, so we have uh, we have uh, five priorities in two thousand and twenty. Um, we will continue our open community uh, platform. Uh, we will, uh, in, in, in that sense, uh, we will improve our on our metadata search, uh, our root engine support in order to uh, make that even easier for our uh, our uh, solution partners to engage uh, more closely with the with the expertech uh, setup, uh, and also develop, uh, of course, continuously on our driver framework. Secondly, we are looking into uh, edge applications and IoT standards, uh, where we are working with uh, OSSA, uh, where we are uh, actually a, a founding uh, partner in order to leverage uh, also that whole uh, community and tap into the IoT uh, growth that we will see uh, in, the, in the future. Uh, fifth uh, or, or third, uh, we will uh, see the, um, uh, the development on the marketplace that I have already uh, discussed a little bit about. Uh, and fourth, we will continue uh, core enhancement on our ExpoTech, the VMS. Uh, again, uh, metadata search uh, more uh, integrated into our uh, ExpoTech, the VMS, but also enhanced mobile uh, performance. Uh, and and fifth, it's uh, uh, we will continue to focus on uh, on on uh, uh, maintain a very high standard on uh, on cyber security. And following on from that, Lars, what do you feel the future roadmap might look like for video management software and MVR development? Uh, yeah, uh, so what we are seeing, uh, and that's also what we are focusing on, um, is uh, the hybrid solution between an on-premise solution and cloud computing uh, technologies uh, in, in general, which both the VMSs and the NVRs in general will uh, leverage in the future. Uh, but we see it as a, as a combination uh, game. Uh, with with the hybrid uh, solution, and that's also why we are uh, during uh, 2020 is, uh, we are going to launch uh, uh, new uh, combinations uh, available. So we uh, have built a integration into Arculus, uh, which is a, a cloud-based solution, but that does not offer the the vast functionality as uh, as an on-prem solution as uh, Expotech does. So we have built an integration uh, together with Arculus on that, and we have also or we will launch uh, soon a um, a new offering uh, through uh, AWS uh, to uh, to make sure that uh, our customers easily can make a a a, a, a local 
uh, on uh, a local uh, uh, cloud-based solution, private cloud-based solution, utilizing uh, the AWS uh, uh, offering. And we will do that uh, uh, with the customers bringing their own uh, licenses. So it will still be the licenses and the software will still be sold uh, through our our current channel. Now, as we know at the moment, Lars, many systems integrators and end users are necessarily operating what we call a temporary new normal. Mm. As a final message to them, what's your core um, message for them at the present time? Yeah, of course, uh, focus uh, on uh, on the safety and well-being of uh, of uh, the employees and uh, and the customers uh, goes uh, without saying. Um, and um, and we uh, continue to offer our support. Um, but what we are doing in addition to that is that um, um, that we are also, also offering a lot of uh, webinars so uh, the resellers uh, and the integrators can utilize uh, if there is any idle time to learn even more about our offering and uh, utilize uh, the time available to build uh, build their own verticals, uh, maybe refine it so that uh, they can be ready to grab the opportunities when everything is uh, opening up. And that's also what what we are uh, what we are doing. And at the same time, we are focusing on um, on on our care product. We have put in a a offer offering in the market uh, right now uh, to help uh, the whole uh, channel uh, in in continue to have some business uh, during these uh, these times. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Rick Malmfield and Lars Larson for their contributions, and also grateful thanks to our sponsors, the Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and also read the latest industry news and opinion. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on Spotify or iTunes, all you need to do is enter Security Matters into the platform search box. We'll see you next time.